Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome back to The Andy Rowe Show. Former UK government advisor and founding chairman of drug science, Professor David Nutt, is going to break the myths and misconceptions around what we call recreational drugs. You're going to hear about both the harms and potential benefits of cocaine, LSD, mushrooms, MDMA and even marijuana. I hope you enjoy the episode. Before we start, a massive thank you to our sponsor this week, Sons, who helped make this show happen. One in four people suffer from gut health issues like IBS, abdominal pain, gas and bloating. Gut health is vital to your general wellness, with 70% of your immune system located there. It's also linked to mental health, improved sports performance and general well-being. So if you have gut health issues or just looking to optimize your gut health, Sons have the solution. Sun's live bacteria supplement is clinically proven to treat digestive troubles and improve your gut health. It's backed up by over 50 clinical trials. I've been using it and I can't speak highly enough of the difference it's made. Check it out at suns.co.uk and use the code ANDY25 to get 25 quid off your first order. Your gut will thank you and you'll also be supporting the podcast and the work we do, which is always much appreciated. Professor David Nutt, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you for inviting me. So you're the founder of Drug Science and the chairman. Can you tell me a little bit about that organization and what you guys do? So Drug Science is a charity which is set up to tell the truth about drugs. I set it up over 10 years ago when I was sacked from my position as the government's chief drugs advisor. I was very fortunate because within a day of being sacked, a successful young stock trader emailed me and said, look, if I give you this same amount of money as you were using to run the ACMD, the government's uh, advisory committee, would you set up a parallel committee and tell the truth rather than have us listening to the misinformation the government was putting out? And of course, I said, fantastic. And since then, drug science has been rolling and his money ran out after a couple of years, but we've managed to raise funds from charities, from grants uh, and from a whole range of sources. And also, of course, from selling copies of my book. So you set this up and you're a, let me get this right, I'm going to try and try and say this, it's a bit of a mouthful, a neuropsychopharmacologist. Very good, very good, yes. I'm a psychiatrist. Neuro is the brain, psycho is the mind, and pharmacology is drugs. And I study the effects of drugs on the brain and mind. And my claim to fame is that I've given more different kinds of drugs to human beings than probably anyone alive, or maybe ever. In fact, there's no class of drug that works on the brain that I haven't actually studied. Right. Okay. And you, so you work a lot with uh, conditions such as, you know, addiction, anxiety and sleep as well, don't you? That's right. That's right. Didn't you write an article that got you sacked from the government about comparing taking ecstasy to horse riding? Yeah, that's absolutely right. That's, that is my most popular article. 
it was about 15 years ago now, and I was trying to explain to the government that ecstasy wasn't as dangerous as they thought it. And then one day in my clinic, I saw a woman who had suffered serious brain damage from horse riding. And I'd come across other people who broke their necks. One of my colleagues broke her neck three times falling off a horse, and she, she carried on riding. So then I thought, well, horse riding is actually pretty dangerous. And I did research, and I discovered it was more dangerous than ecstasy. So then I created a, a drug called Equacy, Equine Addiction Syndrome, which I pretended was a drug, but which is actually horse riding. And I published this paper comparing Equacy with ecstasy. And it was a very, very successful spoof because several of my colleagues said, I got to the second page before I realized that Equacy was not a drug at all. It was horse riding. But the reality is more people die each year from horse riding than die from taking ecstasy. Right. Is it is that a numbers thing or is it a, uh, is it actually you've got the same chances of dying if you take one or the other? So where you can, I looked at nine different harms of horse riding versus nine different harms of ecstasy. And so the one that people are most concerned about is the likelihood of a serious accident or illness or death. And with horse riding, you horse ride and jump over things like fences. You've got a one in three hundred, one in every three hundred and fifty hours, you'll have an accident, and some people will die. Whereas with ecstasy, it's about one in every hundred thousand hours. So ecstasy is much less harmful per hour of use than certainly riding horses. Is ecstasy the same thing as MDMA? So originally, when MDMA was rediscovered by Alexander Shulgin in the nineteen sixties. He said it was a very special kind of amphetamine, different from all the other drugs he test tested. It had more warmth, more clarity of insight. Uh, uh, he introduced it to his wife, who was a psychotherapist, and she said, wow, this is amazing. This will be very helpful for couples whose sort of relationships are breaking down, you know, as happens in, over time. You know, you gradually grow a sort of, you know, layers of hostility. And they used it, and many therapists used it, and they called it empathy. And it was legal and it was fine. And then, and this is where it all went wrong, is when the, the rave scene, the club owners realized it was illegal amphetamine, whereas amphetamines were really illegal. So they started selling it and they changed the name from empathy, which people wouldn't be interested in, to ecstasy, which of course a lot of young clubbers were looking for. Uh, and then ecstasy was initially MDMA and then it's got corrupted because of various attempts to block the production of MDMA, people have put other things in it like PMA or PMMA or caffeine or just, you know, all sorts of things have been put into ecstasy tablets as well as MDMA. But still, a lot of the ones that are being sold now are still strong. In fact, they're very strong MDMA. Why do you think, I guess there's a number of reasons, but what, why do you think MDMA has such a bad rap in the media? Well, the answer is... Uh, why all drugs that are banned have a bad rap is because it, there are political advantages in being hostile, not particularly to drugs, but to drug users. So what happened? The rave scene. The, the rave scene was remarkable because the police loved it. For the first time, young people were, were not using alcohol. Police were going to raves and they were being hugged. Whereas previously, <laughs> they were going to park and beaten up. And... The police loved it. Everyone, everyone was really happy with raves, except the media, uh, the right-wing media. And, and I think it was because of the name. I mean, these right-wing editors 
they probably never had any ecstasy and an ecstatic experience in their life. And the idea that young people were having it because they popped a pill was just anathema to them. They wanted to stop young people having fun. So they created hysteria, they goaded politicians, and the politicians then realized that you know, in Britain, in most countries, the right-wing press control the politics. So the politicians did what the press told them, which was ban it, because they thought they'd get votes for banning it. Because you had a bit of a tough time when you were working for the government with that whole process, didn't you? Yes. Well, I started working for the government. I, I actually, interestingly, cut my teeth on ecstasy, on MDMA. I was brought in to help the government in the early 1990s to deal with the problem that some young people were dying, usually of dehydration and high, hyperthermia, high, blood, high body temperature from MDMA. And I got interested in the whole notion of drugs and drug control at that point. And actually, that time, we made some suggestions, like, for instance, there should always be free water in a bar, in a club, which there is still today. And that, that, was a, that made a dramatic difference. People don't die of hyperthermia. We have water and you have chill-out rooms. You don't die of hyperthermia anymore. Wow. But then I started thinking, well, you know, why is this drug illegal? Is it, how harmful is it? And I realized it wasn't that harmful at all. And I started to think about how we could assess the harms of drugs. And when I was, when I was brought in to, to advise a government, I did it on the condition that we developed a scale for properly evaluating all the different harms of drugs to see which were the most harmful. And of course, it turned out that ecstasy wasn't anything like as harmful as drugs like heroin or crack cocaine, but it was still in Schedule 1 Class A. In fact, I discovered, we discovered about 1999, that you got longer prison sentences for dealing MDMA than you got for dealing heroin. Wow. Long prison sentences of all. It seems a little bit upside down, doesn't it? Yeah, and why is that? Why is that? That's because ecstasy is for fun. So you've got to be punished. Heroin, if you're forced to take heroin, well, you're addicted, so that's different. Mm. But if you just, the idea, you know, British culture, and I guess other cultures too, they don't like the idea that you can have fun on a pill. You know, you, the only way to have fun is to have a cold bath and be beaten by your, your, you know, your form master, really. <laughs> if you, um, I'm guessing there's going to be some young people that listen to this that have taken or will take MDMA at some point. And this isn't meant to be an advertisement at all, but you can drink too much water, can't you? And, and, and there are some drinks that are better than others to drink with it. Okay, really important point here. Yes. So what we've seen in the last 30 years is the transformation. It was in those in the early days, people were dying because they didn't drink enough water because the club owners were switching off the they even switched off the toilets to stop people getting water because they wanted them to drink from the bar. They wanted them to drink alcohol. Now, almost all the deaths we see from MDMA are young women who are dying of what we call water poisoning because young women seem to be very sensitive to one effect of MDMA, which is that the MDMA releases a hormone which retains water. So the classic example, of course, was Leah Betts. Poor Leah thought that she had to drink water to protect herself when she had the experiences of MDMA. But in fact, she drank seven litres of water and she died of water poisoning. So the message is that if you're not sweating, you don't need to drink. And it's best not to drink um, if you've taken, if you think if you're a young woman and you're not to drink water or anything else, if you've taken MDMA, because you'll have harder time than most getting rid of the water. And if you are going to drink, it's best to drink a drink that has a sort of physiological mixture, you know, like a sports drink rather than just plain water. Right. Okay. Psychedelics, that has a, they have a bad reputation as well. But after reading your book, um, Drugs Without the Hot Air, it's a very, 
again, it's a, it's a very harsh reputation, isn't it? Well, that's even more political. I mean, when LSD was discovered in 1943, made available in the 1950s to researchers, it was seen as the revolution in psychiatry and a revolution in neuroscience. It was going to help understand consciousness and all sorts of uh, mental processes. And it, and it was remarkable. It was in the 1950s and 60s, it was shown to be the most effective drug we've ever had to treat alcoholism. Really? What, LSD? LSD. Six trials of LSD, one or two doses for alcoholics produced. It's twice as effective as the best treatment we have today. But it's been banned. It's been banned since 1967. So what's that? That's uh, 50 years. Why was LSD banned? It was banned because the anti-war protesters in America, the anti-Vietnam War protesters in America, some of them took LSD. But the government didn't know what to do with the, with the anti-war protesters. It associated them with LSD. It didn't like the fact, you know, that the music was changing. You know, you'd gone from Buddy Holly to, you know, the Grateful Dead. Everything, LSD was changing everything. Governments were terrified. It thought it would change. Young people would stop. All young people would then be anti-war, anti the establishment, anti the American way of, of, of life and international control. And so they decided to ban the drug, thinking that would stop its use. Of course, it didn't stop its use at all. What it did was stop people like me, doctors, using it. I've estimated now, since LSD was banned, over 100 million people have died prematurely from alcohol use, over 2 million a year. Now it's 3.5 million a year, but let's say it was 2 million a year for 50 years, that's 100 million people have died from alcohol abuse. If LSD had only helped 10% of them, that's 10 million lives saved. Now you say, how many lives have been saved by banning LSD? Well, it might have killed one a year, so, you know, 50, 100. The disproportionate loss to medicine is, you know, the loss to medicine is so much greater than the, the gain from protecting people from LSD. It's, I think it's the worst censorship of, of medicine there's ever been. Is LSD not dangerous, though? Well, LSD can be dangerous. I mean, if you, if you take LSD, you know, and stand on the top of a cliff, it can be very dangerous. If you take LSD in a clinical setting with a therapist, the evidence of harm is trivial. We, 40,000 patients were treated with LSD in the 1950s and 60s. They had lower rates of suicide than the people who weren't treated. They had lower rates of psychosis than the people who were treated. The hysteria about LSD was largely created by the CIA to justify it being banned. Didn't the CIA do overseas tests using it as a weapon? Oh yes, MK Ultra. The, the CIA used it as a as a mind washing agent, or it didn't work. They also used it just as a way of disrupting people. They'd give it to innocent people who'd go completely bonkers because they didn't have a clue what was going on. They, they thought they were going mad. They were going mad. They'd been poisoned. It was wow. yeah. There was a lot of unethical um, experimental use by the CIA. Yeah. Psychedelics like LSD are they are they addictive and you, can you overdose? People assume that because they are banned, they're addictive, but they're not. They're anti-addictive. I've just explained. LSD is the best treatment we have for the addiction called alcoholism. It's also been used to treat addictions to heroin, etc. These drugs are not addictive themselves for this reason. If you take them on a regular basis, like three or four days, the effect disappears and you can't restore it. And funnily enough, do you know how we know that? U.S. military. 
US military were really worried that the Russians were going to be spraying LSD on their troops. So they thought, how can we protect our troops from LSD? So they said, well, let's see what happens if you take it. And they gave it to the troops three or four days in a row. And then it, all the effect disappears. They thought, right, if the Russians are going to attack, we're going to put all our troops on LSD for a few days, and then they'll be immune to the Russian LSD. So the, the answer is people don't get addicted. It's not Moorish. It doesn't, people don't crave it. It's, in fact, most people who use LSD use it probably no more than three or four times in their life. Second question, is it, is it dangerous and overdose? Well, the answer is no, not compared with heroin, not compared with fentanyl, not compared with cocaine, not compared with alcohol. Way safer an overdose than any of those commonly used drugs. It's not perfectly safe, obviously. Some people do have psychotic reactions. Very, but and some people have bad trips and they remember the bad trips. But overall, the harms are pretty trivial. You mentioned trading alcoholism, trading depression. Is that something that has been done or is that something that has been done with LSD and psychedelics? So we have been, we've done two trials, the two big trials of psilocybin, magic mushroom juice in depression. A group at Johns Hopkins has done the same. So there are three studies in depression and they show very powerful effects of psilocybin to treat depression. Just to say the reason we don't work with LSD, we've studied LSD in the brain and we know it works powerfully like psilocybin, but the reason we don't use it clinically, the two reasons, one is the trips last too long. So we have to keep people in hospital overnight because the trips can last for you know, up to 15, 18 hours. Yeah. And the second is LSD is just one of those words that makes politicians and journalists and media editors go insane. You know, it's the one you say LSD and they say no, you know, whereas psilocybin, no one knows how to say it, how to spell it. And, it, eh, and mushrooms are pretty safe. If, you know, millions of people use mushrooms every year. So that's why we use psilocybin. But it's a very powerful treatment for depression. If you're interested in the uh, use of psychedelics to treat um, depression, then if you go onto the BBC Catch Up iPlayer, May the 19th, BBC 2, 9pm UK time, there's an hour-long documentary where they have followed patients that have been in our trial all the way through the treatment. And it's, it's extremely beautiful. Their descriptions of their the impacts of the of the psilocybin and the benefits of their depression. It, it, it's very moving. I, I recommend everyone who's interested in this to watch it. Don't you see stuff when you're on psychedelics? I've never taken a psychedelic, but I've heard, and it's got me curious. Like I'd quite like to take something where I see something and it just see a different world almost. Like there's a little bit of curiosity involved. In, and I think that's probably why other pe why, why people that have taken it have taken it. It's a very important point you make, Andy. People say, oh, well, these are just recreational drugs. But I don't believe psychedelics are recreational drugs. I think people who take psychedelics are doing so because they are interested in understanding the full capacity of their mind. And there is absolutely no doubt psychedelics open up your mind in a way which nothing else does. Nothing ever does. What advice would you give someone that... that I know you don't like the word recreationally necessarily, but if someone was taking it recreationally, experientially, I think it's experiential. Well, People don't you don't take you don't take psychedelics to get high. You take it because you want to know. I'd say the, you want to know the other other ways of thinking. A lot of people take DMT because it takes them into another universe. They go into a completely different realm. You know, they go through a wormhole into right. a whole new universe where they meet other people. They meet entities. Many of them like doing that. They do it regularly because they find the entities helpful. But these are very transformational. So what advice would I give to people? Well, don't do it alone. 
make sure if you're doing it with other people, do it people that have done it before. Make sure if you can, it's difficult because they're illegal, but, but use something that other people have proven to be safe on themselves. Always make sure that at least one of you isn't taking anything in case things go wrong. Always take a lowest dose. Uh, uh, yeah, that, don't overdose to start with if you never experienced it. So take a, you know the very minimal dose you think is going to work and make sure you don't take any other drugs with it. And some people might take something like that and be waiting for it to kick in and think it's not working and maybe take more and that could be a problem. How long should it take to kick in if someone's taking, I don't know, any any of that kind of thing? Well, it's, yeah, I mean, you don't ever, don't ever double your dose. This this is a big. This had has been a huge problem with it, with the with the ecstasy, because back in the you know seven eight years ago when ecstasy level ecstasy tablets were being replaced by PMA tablets, people that come up with ecstasy is normally about thirty minutes. PMA, it takes an hour. People at 30 minutes, people saying, oh, this is bum ecstasy. They were taking another two tablets, but each PMA tablet was stronger than an MDMA tablet. And by the time the three tablets got in their brain, an hour and a half later, they oh, were God. dead. So, so never double up, ever, ever, you know, because um, most, you know, if you don't get an effect within an hour, you're, you know, then you wait for a few hours and start again or wait till another day. The other thing you can do, and this is completely legal, is you, there are retreats in holland where uh, the mushrooms legal we can go and have an experience with with you know with, with other people with guides it's completely safe or as far as anything can be safe in a protected environment or you can go to spain which has ayahuasca is legal in spain so you can have ayahuasca retreats in spain so it's big in south america isn't it ayahuasca well ayahuasca was discovered in south america you're the native um, peoples of the amazon basin they discovered this drink they discovered that if you mix two plants, uh, one of which contains DMT and one of which contains another substance called harmaline, that prevents a breakdown of DMT, you can then drink a tea made out of DMT, and it works. If you were to drink DMT, it, nothing would happen because your liver would destroy it. But if you take this other uh, product, harmaline, that blocks the breakdown of DMT, so then the drink can get the DMT into your brain. And they discovered this thousands of years ago. They believe it was a gift from the gods. It allowed them to see the gods. It allowed them to see the world in a different way. They use it all the time. It's part of their culture. Of course, it's now become a very uh, a very interesting target for, for Western people, particularly young, you know, young Western people uh, going away on their gap years, going to Peru or, or Brazil and having an ayahuasca experience is seen as something... You know, it's very desirable and many people do it and many mm. people come back thinking that was really worth doing. Yeah, I know someone who's who's done that. Very high-functioning, successful businessman that went over to South America and, uh, and, and went to a, a retreat and did that and came back and just can't speak highly enough of it. It is eye-opening for him. Well, one of the things we've discovered is we've been almost all the research that we have done with psychedelics has been funded by philanthropists. In the 15 years of our research, even though we're transforming the treatment of depression, the government has given us virtually nothing. Our first grant was approved and we put in five subsequent grants and everyone has been turned down. But the good news is there are some very rich people out there who have become rich because they took psychedelics. Ah. And, they, and they are funding our research. And of course, the best example is Steve Jobs. I mean, yeah, Steve Jobs created the most, well, before Amazon, the biggest company in the history of the world. 
And he said, LSD, one of the five most important experiences of my life. And he, LSD gave Steve Jobs this phenomenal vision, which was don't just build computers like Dell, let's build works of art that are computers like the machine I'm using now, the airbook, you know, which is, which is you know, a, a ridiculously beautiful and effective piece of machinery. Mm. And, you know, so you can argue that LSD created uh, the most powerful company, you know, certainly computer company the world's ever seen. Oh my god, magic mushrooms! That they they grow naturally in the UK, don't they? Are they how dangerous are they? Because they're also banned. Well, they weren't banned until two thousand and five. They got banned because David Cameron decided, and the Daily Mail decided to attack Tony Blair as being soft on drugs. And I mean, one of the reasons we were allowed to do research in depressed people with magic mushrooms is because they're so safe. We. We presented data to the regulator saying, well, about a million young people a year use magic mushrooms. There's never been a death. So it's, these are very safe, um, you know, very, very safe um, plants. The medicine side of side is very safe. So the answer is, you know, even if you were to take hundreds of them, you might throw up, but it ain't going to kill you. Mm. What about the long-term health effects from taking any sort of psychedelic or MDMA? Well, yes, absolutely. And then we've got to disentangle the, uh, the fears that have been promoted by governments and regulators versus the reality. So I'm going to give you some examples. Who discovered LSD? Albert Hoffman. Used it regularly. Died at 102. Okay. The first British person to take LSD, Joel Elkies, professor of psychiatry at Birmingham University, lived to 103. So the idea that LSD fries your brain. I mean, there's a lot of interest in these drugs actually promoting brain health and actually increasing longevity. There are studies going on to see if you can actually treat Alzheimer's with psychedelics. So the answer is there's very little evidence of any health harms and it may be beneficial. And it's particularly beneficial for mental health. So, so I mean, people, there's less suicides, there's less depression in people who have taken psychedelics. It seems to help their brain cope better with life. What about cocaine? Because that's enough. That's not a psychedelic. It's a stimulant. That's a popular recreational drug, especially in the UK and the US. What are your thoughts on cocaine? Well, that is a recreational drug. People don't take cocaine to get insights. They get take cocaine to get high, and to have you know more energy and more sex and and more fun. And that's why it's a much more dangerous drug because it's much more addictive because because cocaine works on the brain system that drives addiction. And so once you had the high from cocaine, you've experienced something that you want to gain. You get craving. And the only way you can get it is through taking more cocaine. How regular would someone have to be taking cocaine for it to have like long term irreversible damage? It attacks the heart, doesn't it? Well, okay, the really important message about cocaine is that it is bad for the heart. So if you've got any heart problems, don't take it. But it's even worse if you take it with alcohol because the combination of cocaine and alcohol makes another drug, a new drug called cocaethylene. And cocaethylene hangs around longer than cocaine. It's like it's long-acting cocaine. And that is it's the combination of those two things, the coca and the ethanol, that leads to the heart problems. Right, okay. How often would you need to be taking it to for that to be a problem well but most people who take cocaine in a usual recreational way don't get cardiac problems but but some people just drop dead really? yeah and yeah i mean it's you know i mean 
you know, every every year, isn't it? You know, one US basketball star drops dead from cocaine, and that's usually because he's very big, very tall, got probably got some kind of cardiomyopathy. Yeah, cocaine the balance. I mean, a lot of sportsmen. Well, you know, sportsmen die. You know, footballers every now and then die of these cardiac arrhythmias. So, because they, it's some combination of being very fit and also having a more, more vulnerable heart. Does that have like long-term damage as well? Like, if someone was taking it and twenty years down the track, would would there be side effects then that were attributed to the cocaine they took twenty years ago? Twenty years of regular cocaine use would not be good. For that. <laughs> I mean, like if someone took it, like when they were when they were. I'm just thinking about, let's say, a, a, someone in their twenties goes out one night. They they take cocaine, well, for you know a year of their party life or five years of their party life. Is that going to have like long term damage down the track? Not unless you actually damage your heart during that process. Right. Okay. If you do have a heart attack, then of course your heart. Yeah, you're be. you're in trouble. What's the process that goes into into making cocaine? Like as far as like. I know, like, let's say it comes from South America or Peru or um, wherever it comes from. But before it gets to the streets, I'm guessing it's cut with a whole lot of different stuff that's also probably not good for you, I'm guessing. Well, some of it's, some of it's not good. Yeah, you're right. You know, some bit strychnine is not very good for you. Keeps you awake, though. Hitler likes strychnine, but it's not good for you. Um, what is cut with is what they've got at the time. So a lot of the people are cutting it now with this uh, anti-helminth thing, you know, this this treatment called levamisole, which is an anti-helminthic drug because it looks like cocaine. So it probably helps you clear out your guts, you know, bugs from your gut, but it isn't very, it isn't particularly good if you take too much. So yeah, so but by and large, the cutting agents in most drugs aren't the toxic agents. The only exception is this, and this is not cutting, but this is there's a very worrying new trend and that is to replace or to augment, to supplement opiates with fentanyls. Because heroin is actually hard to get, it's expensive. So now gangs are now putting fentanyls in with heroin to give it more of a kick, more of an opiate kick. And fentanyls can be very, very toxic. They're so potent. Some of them are a thousand times more potent than heroin. So it's so potent that people don't know how to weigh it out. You know. if you wear it out and you accidentally inhale some, you die. So, you know, people don't bother to wear it out. They just put a couple of specks in, but one speck could kill you. So that is the real killer at present. It's, it's, not, the, it's not the other cutting agents, but it's, a, it's the, the supplements to heroin with fentanyls that are really dangerous. Or spice. Of course, the other supplements, synthetic, synthetic cannabinoids, are really very dangerous as well. That's caused a lot of trouble in the last couple of years, isn't it? Synthetic cannabis. Absolutely. But only in this country, mostly in this country. Why? Because in this country, we want to stop people using cannabis. We believe, sorry, the government believes, the press believes that cannabis is a dangerous drug. And they believe that they can eliminate cannabis use by telling people not to use it and by testing people for using it. Uh, And they started that in prisoners. And prisoners are not stupid. They realize that cannabis hangs around in their body for months. So they stop using cannabis and they switched initially to heroin and uh, other drugs like GHB, which are much more dangerous. And then when they started, the prison started testing for those, they switched to synthetic cannabinoids. And, and many of these had never been tested in humans before. And now every prison in Britain has to have a special um, platoon of big, strong male paramedics to deal with the craziness that the synthetic cannabinoids are producing. We have 70 deaths from synthetic cannabinoids 
in Britain last year. We've never had a deaf in cannabis. But by trying to eliminate cannabis, we created this monster of, of synthetic cannabinoids, which are killing people in prisons, killing people on the streets, and actually causing people to be so crazy, they kill other people too. Wasn't Queen Victoria a big fan of the real stuff? People don't, people don't realise that the British Empire was the biggest drug dealer in the history of the world. So the British East India Company made millions and that's a lot of money in those days. That's in those days, that's billions selling opium to the Chinese and selling cannabis to the Indians. So when we took over India, the Indians used to use cannabis. They called it Ganja. The whole origin of Hinduism, the Hindu religion is built out of drugs because Lord Shiva got the, his visions from sleeping under a cannabis bus, probably after he smoked it. Anyway, that's another story. But so it, cannabis used in India, the Brits go there, they think, hey, this is a huge market. You know, it's a bit like taking over the drinks market in England or Great Britain. So basically they made the Indians grow kanja for us. And then we sold it back to the Indians. And then the money came back to Britain. And so the great Victorian empire that Britain was, or the centre of the empire, my university, Imperial College, it's got this enormous tower to Queen Victoria built on drug money from selling cannabis to, to Indians and selling opium to the Chinese. Now, the Chinese didn't want the opium. The Chinese knew that opium was bad for their people, but we made them, we forced them in the opium wars, we forced the Chinese government to buy opium from us. God. I mean, it's just outrageous. We did. We, we attacked China and we they basically, we forced them into defeat and they were then forced to sell opium. So, yeah, we were the greatest ever drug dealers. We don't talk about that enough, do we? You know, and Queen Victoria, by the way, was a, she was very keen on cannabis. She used it for pain, period pains. She used it for pains after childbirth, like many women do. And I, I kind of have my feeling, the reason that so many kids, that she used to get a bit stoned up in Marlboro in the winter and, uh, and have fun with Prince Albert. <laughs> Other than that. Uh wanting you to have a little bit more fun with the other half. What, what, what are some of the benefits of, of cannabis? Oh, this is a revolution in some aspects of medicine. I mean, cannabis is a remarkable medicine. I mean, let me give you an example, childhood seizures. There are children now who are alive because of medical cannabis. No other anti-convulsant works. The problem is the government won't pay for it. They're all having to pay for it on private prescriptions. But back in 1839, when cannabis medicines came into Britain and the medicine that Queen Victoria was using, we knew then the man that brought it in, Thomas O'Shaughnessy, he said it was really it was used in India all the time to stop seizures. So he brought it to treat seizures in Britain and it does treat seizures. But then because of the war on drugs, cannabis was made illegal. It was taken out of the medical pharmacopoeia to stop recreational use. Kind of absurd concept, you know. You ban a medicine to stop people using a recreational drug. It never works. But uh, we've banned it from these children. So children, so now children have to go to Holland and Canada to get their medicines. Still, they can't get medical cannabis for their epilepsy in Britain, even though it is way better than any other treatment we've got. And there are many disorders. I mean. You see a lot of people with Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, they're using uh, cannabis for their bowel problems. For pain, it's the preferred treatment for chronic pain by people with chronic pain. The doctors say it doesn't work. The patients say it does. And it's much nicer than the opiates and much safer than the opiates. 
but the doctors say, no, 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 we haven't got the trial showing it works. The reason it doesn't work is they don't ask the right questions. <laughs> they don't ask the patients. <laughs> so, yeah, and there are many other conditions. I mean, it's, uh, it's going to be, a, it helps sleep disorders, it helps PTSD, it helps anxiety disorders. It's helping syndromes like Tourette syndrome. It's even helping schizophrenia. There are really? some. Pro- I thought it caused schizophrenia. Yeah, so this is a complicated answer. So cannabis is not a single molecule. Medical cannabis is a, a, a series of plant products, the two main ones of which are THC, which gets you stoned, and cannabidiol, which is an anti-stoning agent and a relaxant. And now there's several studies showing that cannabidiol is antipsychotic. People are adding it to people with other treatments for psychosis. So traditional cannabis probably was antipsychotic. But because we banned it, because we tried to get rid of cannabis and everyone moved to skunk, which is high THC, no CBD, and to spice, we've actually made cannabis much more likely to cause psychosis because we've essentially driven people down the path of a much more toxic Mm. variant. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I read in your book about, that. I found it really interesting just about how there are Vietnamese gangs in Britain yes. with slaves that supply yep. the weed to the UK. Yep. Is that true? Is that still happening? Or how long has that been going on for? Well, it's been going on for about 15 years. It's happening less now. I think Brexit has put some, has reduced that. It's harder for the Vietnamese to bring in their kids. But yeah, houses were being taken over, factories, old factories taken over, turned into to cannabis factories, growing skunk, you know, the worst kind of, of um, plant, high THC. So skunk, an actual plant. Yeah, a skunk was actually a plant. I mean, right. I, I use the term skunk to mean any any form of strong strong THC, right. low cannabidiol. And they were just basically locking these kids in and they just looked after the plants. I mean, it was, it was slavery. My friend Possum back in New Zealand um, loves, loves to bake muffins, loves, loves, loves to have a spliff. Is, is eating it better? Is that, is that better for you? Also, yeah, I, I had a relative that was ill and we, we were making them cakes back in the day. Is it better for you to, to be eating it than any other option? Are we talking medical now? Let's talk medical. Yeah, let's talk medical. So, yeah, generally oral, or oil under the tongue. The best way of getting cannabis, medical cannabis in is to put it under your tongue and absorb through, your, through the mouth. Because if you swallow it, about three quarters is destroyed by the liver. So you've got to take four times as much. But brownies are a good way of getting in on a slow, slow release form. So if you've got pain and you want to sleep, you know, five milligrams of 
THC in a brownie before you go to bed can give you a good night's sleep. If you're like many people, if you've got a disorder like multiple sclerosis, where you get suddenly excruciating pain, so you can't move, you're frozen, then smoking it, vaping it, prep rather than smoking, that's the best way. Right. The great thing is you've got, we've got multiple forms now, so it's very easy to, yeah. to get what you want if you can get a prescription for them. People that use those like water bongs, are they better than smoking it? Probably, probably somewhat better. Right. Smoking is generally less preferred um, because other things than just the active ingredient get in your mouth. Yeah. When you see someone smoking a, a joint or a spliff, they do a big like, and they hold it in. Why are they holding it in? Is that does that help them, or is that because they're getting more high? Or what's the getting more of the THC through the through the uh, mouth through the right. skin of the mouth? Oh, so they hold it in their mouth, not in their lung. I see. Do you think Do you think cannabis should be legal? Oh, of course, it should. Yeah, absolutely. When you but by legal, I mean it should be sold in regulated stores. I think I would call them a pharmacy, <laughs> where you mm. go and buy your cannabis pills or your cannabis spliffs or your cannabis oil for recreational as well as medical use. Kind of like they have in the Netherlands. Like they have in the Netherlands, like they have in Canada, like they have mm. in Uruguay, like they have in, I think, 17 US states now. Do you think alcohol should be legal? I think it should be regulated like it used to be in the old days. Really? Well, when I was when I was a teenager, the only way place you could buy alcohol was in a bar or an off-license, a licensed premises. Now you can, you know, the reason we got such an explosion of harms from alcohol is because we liberated access in supermarkets, and that just doubled consumption and tripled the harms. Right. So, so having it in supermarkets is a bad idea. Very much a bad idea. Is there? Do you think there's a safe level of alcohol consumption, or depends what you're trying to protect against? If you're trying to protect against liver disease, yep. I mean, half a pint of beer a day is safe. If you want to protect against cancer, there's no safe level against cancer. Any any alcohol of any sort increase your risks of cancer. Really? I mean, not not, not massively. You okay. Know. Not but like everything does, doesn't it? Or is it? Uh, well, we don't know about everything. <laughs> we, do, we do know that alcohol is linked to eight cancers. Right. Well, there you go. There you go. What do you think the solution is around alcohol? Like, what, if you were advising the government, um, what what would the solution be to Minimum unit pricing, bring the minimum, the minimum price of a unit up to 60 or 65 pence per unit of alcohol. That would affect only the people that drink excessively at very high end or the, very, or the young kids. The extremes would be curtailed and the rest of us, you, a bit, none of us are drinking alcohol that, that costs less than that, except for the people that are very young or the very addicted. Does, do you think like banning some drugs, just going back to what you were saying earlier about it, there's so many drugs have been banned, like LSD, MDMA, all, all those drugs have been sort of made illegal. Do, how much does that affect and how much does that push back the research into the good that they can do? Oh, it's the worst censorship of research in the history of the world. Never in the history of the world has the whole world agreed to ban research of a particular topic. And that's what they said and that's what they've done with these so-called illegal drugs it's way the worst censorship there's ever been and it set research back by 50 years Far out. what do you think the future is for for drug research well it's looking very bright i mean now we've been pushing back we've been getting permissions to study psychedelics and to mdma i think mdma will be a medicine 
in the next couple of years for PTSD and possibly for alcoholism associated with trauma. I think psilocybin will be a medicine in three or four years for depression and then possibly other disorders like anorexia and OCD. I think it's possible that DMT will also be, I think ayahuasca will be a medicine in Spain in a few years and possibly, and certainly in South America, it's already a medicine. Right. Professor David Nutt, thank you so much for joining me. Andy, it's been an absolute delight. Thank you. Your book, Drugs Without Hot Air, the revised and updated edition, is out now. And um, where, where else can people find out more about what you're doing? Go on the Drug Science website. Follow me on Twitter. I tweet a lot, but only about these kind of interesting things. You'll never find out what I'm eating or drinking, but you will find out about my research and my talks and uh, programs, etc. Brilliant. And thank you very much for listening. We'll be back again next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.